Good morning, Sun Valley. It's good to see you again today. I'm thankful that you're joining us and uh, pray that God will minister his word to your heart at this time. Uh, ever since everything shut down, there's been no sports. And I don't know if you're one of the great sport fans who are currently experiencing withdrawals or not, but it certainly has been an adjustment to many people's schedule. It makes you wonder how civilization survived 100 years ago without any sports, right? <laughs> well, I want to remind you of, uh, of a famous uh, sports skit by comedians Abbott and Costello when they went through the Who's On First baseball skit. <clears throat> if you'll remember, Abbott begins by saying, well, let's see, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know, is on third. And Costello answering, well, that's what I want to find out. Abbott, I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know, is on third. Costello, are you the manager? Abbott, yes. Costello, and you're going to be the coach too? Abbott, yes. Costello, and you don't know the fellow's names? Abbott, well, I should. Costello, well, then who's on first? Abbott, yes. Costello, I mean the fellow's name. Abbott, who? Costello, the guy on first. Abbott, who? Costello, the first baseman. Abbott, who? Costello, the guy playing. Abbott, who is on first? Costello, I'm asking you who's on first. Abbott, that's the name of the man. Costello says, that's whose name? Abbott, yes. And this goes on for five minutes, covering every single position on the baseball field. It's actually quite hilarious. It seems that doctrine and theology can be like that sometimes. I felt a little like this when I was writing out the sermon, trying to figure out how to explain to you how to communicate that thing that Paul is pursuing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Let me read it for you and show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straightening towards what ahead. What's ahead? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So what is it in verses 12 and 14? Well, it is the same as this in verses 12 and 13. Today, I want to preach to you about this and it. This and it are the goal of the Christian life. This and it are why you were saved by grace. This and it is what this sermon is about. And I want to say five things about this and it. This may sound a bit like the Abbott and Costello skit. But by the end of this sermon, I hope you'll know what it is and won't be confused by any of this. So let's begin with the first point. It begins with God. An important truth to understand about this is that God initiates it. He's not waiting around hoping to see you come to your senses finally and embrace his gift or his, his offer of salvation and pursue him. No, God reaches down. God initiates. He grabs hold of us and draws us into relationships. This is what it says in verse 12. Because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me, has made me his own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's where all this begins. God not only draws us into relationship with Jesus, he begins to mold us and shape us so that we'll become like him more and more every day. God actually creates spiritual life. 
Jesus had, has made me my own. That's a, an act of God creating spiritual life in what was a dead soul. And so he regenerates the heart. He, he turns it from a dead stone into a living, beating, and vibrant flesh, as we read of in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what the whole Bible calls the new birth. Before this spiritual miracle takes place, everybody is certainly physically and intellectually alive, but are completely spiritually dead. Therefore, no one can respond to the spiritual stimuli they encounter on a natural basis. In this spiritually dead condition, spiritual things are unknowable and seem foolish. God's word is just another piece of literature. The church is just another social club. But when God comes in, reaches down, and touches the heart, we come to life and realize that the gospel is good news and see God as a loving father. And until that happens, there is no point in discussing discipleship or, or spiritual growth or anything spiritual for that matter because we're spiritually dead. We, we don't engage those things. Example of God's initiating work are all over the Bible. I mean, you see God reaching down and grabbing hold of Abraham or Abram when he was in Ur. We see God doing the same to Moses. We see him doing the same to David, to John the Baptist, and here to Paul. This is what God begins. It begins with God. And even though God begins it, it seems, according to these verses we're reading here in Philippians 3, that it's incomplete. You're saying, wait a minute, my salvation is incomplete? And I want to answer that question by saying yes and no. Christ's saving work certainly is complete. Jesus himself said, it is finished, right, in John 20. But here it seems that we're seeing that the continuing work of salvation is at hand. Paul's passionate longing in verses 10 and 11 is meant to be a model for every Christian when he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the and sharing his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. That's, that is the passion or model for every Christian to follow. We're each called to, to make passion and affection for Christ our own. This is what it is. Do you want this kind of affection for Christ? Are you praying that God will grant you this kind of passion, Christian friend? In verses 10 and 11, we hear Paul's heart for God and think that we could never attain that kind of affection for Jesus. But now here in verses 12 and 13, we see a glimmer of hope, don't we? Yeah, we see Paul himself acknowledge his lack of it also. He flatly admits that he has not obtained it, and he's far from perfect. He, he essentially says, I haven't arrived. And that's strangely encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> Paul didn't believe in Christian perfectionism. As lofty as Paul's intentions were that we read in verses 10 and 11, he balanced that with humble reality in verses 12, 13, and 14. He knew he wasn't anywhere near perfect. I hope that encourages your heart, friend. I'm going to try to explain to you why it would. Evidently, the language that Paul chose here in verses 12 and 13 was aimed specifically at those who claim to have arrived at heavenly perfection here on earth. Paul's confession of imperfection destroys that possibility. This letter was written towards the end of the Apostle Paul's career, after he had experienced all that he had, including his personal encounters with Christ, his knowledge of Scripture, all that 
So if Paul wasn't perfect at this point in his Christian life, when would he ever be? The point is, is that perfection is not possible during your earthly Christian experience. Paul admitted that he still had growing to do. He still pressed on. He still strained forward, even as an apostle, even as apostle, as an apostle near the end of his life. There are two errors that anybody who claims perfection make. There are two errors. The first is this, incomplete self-examination. It seems those who claim perfection, Christian perfection, amazingly there are some who do so, those who do so stop short of taking the examination beyond the big sins, the gross sins, the crucial sins. They think, I haven't murdered, I haven't cheated, I haven't committed adultery, so I, I must be without sin. But this is ignoring the sins of the heart, like greed, envy, bitterness, along with the sins of omission, like the sins that you commit because you haven't done something, like serve, love, or give. It's self-deception and very dangerous. The second error is setting a low standard. You, you think to yourself, if you're one who embraces Christian perfectionism, well, I'm better than my friend, I'm better than my neighbor, so... Friends, our standard isn't other sinners. Our standard is the perfect Jesus Christ. And so we can't have incomplete self-examination. We can't set low standards. Some Puritans even have written that their confession of sin was full of sin. Think of that. Their confession of sin was full of sin. What that means is that in the act of confession, one can easily ignore sin, pridefully convince themselves of purity, or come into the presence of God flippantly, which are sin. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the more I know Christ, the more I'm aware of my sin, the more I'm aware of my weaknesses and my need of Christ. So if you think that you've arrived or embraced this idea of Christian perfectionism, the normal tendency will be to stagnate or become apathetic in your pursuit of Christ. And I think this is one of the primary reasons that God doesn't offer perfection in this lifetime. He wants us to want, he wants us to need, to press on, to strain forward. Jesus in Matthew 5, 26 says, I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It begins with God, but it isn't complete. Thirdly, it has a purpose. This and it have a purpose. Paul knew that God saved him for a reason. Ultimately, that reason is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And the way that God would have Paul bring glory to Jesus Christ is the same way that he would have you and me bring glory to Jesus Christ. How is that? By becoming like him. How do we become like him? Well, by getting to know him intimately. That intimate pursuit of Christ is what Paul's talking about here. We know from other places in Scripture that the more we're exposed to Jesus, the more we become like him. For example, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, As we behold the glory of Jesus, we are changed into his likeness. Romans 8.28 is another one. And verse 29, let me read it for you. And we know that for those who love God, all things, including pleasant and unpleasant things, all things work together for good. What good? Well, Paul's about to say, 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's God's purpose? I just said it. For you and I to be conformed into the image of Christ, to become intimate with Jesus Christ. Verse 29, for those that God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, friends, God's purpose is revealed here in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 8.28 and 29 and Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through or 10 through 14. God's purpose here in, in Romans 8 we see that all things are the things that God orchestrates in our lives for your transformation in mind so that we'll become more and more like Jesus. All things, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. This is why Paul embraced everything that came his direction. He embraced his weaknesses. He embraced his sufferings and trials. Why? Because they were orchestrated by God to bring about Christ's likeness. These things were at the forefront of Paul's thinking. He wanted more and more of Jesus Christ. He wanted a deep, personal, and intimate relationship with him. He knew that the better he knew Jesus the more that he would become like him. This is God's point or purpose in saving people. God saves us to make us holy, pure, kind, loving, and gracious, just like Jesus is. That's God's purpose. Philippians 1.6 says that whatever God begins, he finishes. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Paul wrote, The work of transformation into the image of Jesus Christ will happen. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when, when it comes to becoming like Jesus. And because of this, there are some Christians who think that since the outcome is guaranteed, I'm I'm guaranteed to become like Jesus, there's no real point of getting all worked up and pressing on and straining forward as Paul's talking about here in verses 12 and 13 and 14 of Philippians 3. But friends, listen to me. God expects transformation to begin immediately. Not wait until that day when we see him face to face, no. Salvation, the, the initiation that God creates in bringing us to Christ is the moment we begin changing into his likeness. The program begins when God saves us. You see, God has desired that When we see Jesus face to face, we will become exactly like him. But between this day and that day, between now and the day we see Jesus face to face, God expects us, he commands us to follow, to obey, to grow, to learn, to become. It begins with God. Yes, it's incomplete. It has a purpose. And fourthly, I think you can see from this text in Philippians 3, that it requires effort. Do you see this? The reality of not being perfect or, or having arrived is the very thing that motivated Paul to press on, to strain forward. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have been made perfect, but brothers, I, I press on, I, I, I strain forward towards this objective. It requires effort. Paul used very strong language to describe his desires to pursue Christ more diligently. It's it's an athletic determination. We've all seen this while participating or watching sports, haven't we? In certain situations, it seems that athletes will themselves to victory. 
They refuse to be beaten. They refuse to be denied. It's kind of like the Rocky mentality. Even though he got knocked down a hundred times, he keeps getting up, keeps pursuing, keeps pressing, keeps straining. That's what Paul's describing here in these verses. Friends, has Christ made you his own? Then if he has, your response must be to do everything you can with all the energy that you can muster to experience intimacy with Jesus and slowly but surely be transformed into his likeness. We're not saved by a great sacrificial and special work of Christ to be lukewarm, apathetic, and disinterested Christians. No, we were saved by a passionate Savior to be passionate Christians. Paul acknowledged that he hadn't arrived at that level of a spiritual maturity yet, but he immediately wrote, after he acknowledged and admitted that he hadn't arrived, he immediately wrote that he continued to press and strain towards that end. So, Christian friend, if Paul was required to exert such great effort to become like Jesus, to grow spiritually, what do you think will be required of us? Anything different? Anything less? I doubt it. Spiritual progress requires action and passion. It will never happen if you're lethargic or passive in your Christian life. Paul speaks of the Christian life in other books or letters that he wrote as fighting the good fight. You remember that in his letter to Timothy? Waging warfare, training, running, wrestling. That's how Paul describes the Christian life. What this means is that along with this passage here in Philippians 3, the Christian life is intensely active. Would you describe your Christian life as intensely active? I want you to consider that this morning. In these verses, Paul said that he pressed on twice, he said it. Just in three verses, I press on, I press on. And he doesn't just leave it at that. He adds the words, straining forward. He doesn't look backward at all of his accomplishments, and he had many. No, he presses on. He strains forward. Straining forward are the words used by Paul that describe his extreme effort. Paul had in mind a man in a race who sees the finish line out there, and he's straining with everything he's got to be the first one to cross that line. You, you've seen this in a race, right? Two runners running neck and neck towards the finish line. And as they approach that finish line, that tape, they both strain to beat the first one across that line. That's what Paul's describing here. That kind of straining, that kind of effort. This personal testimony of Paul is so valuable for us ordinary Christians. Uh, we're familiar with the super Christians out there, right? Who write books or, or who lead large ministries. When we compare ourselves with them, it's easy to get discouraged with our lack of spiritual progress or our value to the kingdom of God. But these words of Paul here in 12, 13, and 14 are extraordinarily helpful. Paul, the apostle Paul, struggled. He had to fight for every inch. He had to strain for every advance. If there was ever a super-Christian, it was the Apostle Paul, but here he opens the window of his soul so that we can see that we are all in the same boat, needing to fight the fight, fight for spiritual progress, fight for intimacy with Jesus, fight to become like our Savior. It's not that we haven't attended the right seminars or heard the right doctrines or read the right books. 
that those super Christians have, no. It's just that we are all on a journey to intimacy with Jesus and we need to keep on keeping on. Paul is saying that the Christian life is all about striving. It's all about struggling, exerting effort, pressing onward, pressing forward, pressing upward in the direction of the goal of knowing Jesus more intimately and becoming more like him. One of the reasons that there are so many immature Christians is because of apathy, I think. Many think that they can coast right up to heaven's door. After they've come to faith or they thought they've come to faith, they think the rest is put it in neutral and let it just coast. It seems that soon after conversion, many Christians become infected with with what I'm calling the pandemic of Christian complacency. They see it in so many others at church. The only exceptional Christians are those who write books or have books written about them. This pandemic is very contagious in churches, and instead of being infected because you've been too close to other Christians, you're usually infected because you haven't been close enough with other Christians, true Christians, Christ-pursuing Christians, gospel-partner Christians. You see, you catch Christian complacency because you remain on the perimeter or on the fringe. At some point, you've decided not to become too connected, not to get too zealous. You've made the unconscious decision to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church. How can we avoid this pandemic of Christian complacency? I think we can follow simply what Paul has stated here in these verses. Do you have Christian complacency virus? Can you see signs of it in your life? Well, these three verses here, 12, 13, and 14, reveal to us how we can avoid it. First of all, acknowledge your need. Paul says, I haven't arrived. Not that I've obtained this. Not that I've been made perfect. That's what, he admitted his, his weaknesses, his shortcomings. Acknowledge your need. And if you can't seem to, to come to that place, then plead with God to help you, like the psalmist did in Psalm 139. He said this, He goes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can you pray that prayer? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. So the first thing is simply acknowledge your need like Paul did. Secondly, focus on the necessary. Look at how Paul focuses on the necessary here. He says, brothers, in verse 13, I do not consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do. Paul didn't do 10 things, he did one thing. Focus on the necessary thing, that one important thing. It's easy to get distracted in our pursuit of intimacy with Jesus, isn't it? Our jobs, our homes, our careers, our families, our futures, our leisure, all seem to want to distract us from this one thing, the necessary thing. If you want to have passion for Christ with an intensity like Paul's, you must train yourself to be single-minded like Paul. Paul told the Colossians to think on things that were above, not on things that are of this world. Paul focused on one thing, and he did it regularly. Next, what can you do to avoid Christian complacency? Don't dwell on the past. He says, forgetting what is behind. This is the one thing I do. I forget what's behind and I strain towards what's ahead. That's one thing in Paul's mind. Don't dwell on the past. Pursuing this and it mean that you don't think about your past. 
You don't dwell on your past failures or victories. You remain focused on the goal that's in front of you. If you spend all your time remembering your failures, what's going to happen? You're going to be in a constant state of defeat. On the other hand, if you spend all your time remembering and replaying your victories, you're going to struggle with pride and be unready for any spiritual concerns that face you. So you can't spend your time rehearsing the past, is what Paul's saying. Now, now mind you, Paul wasn't saying that he didn't fondly remember his conversion or or his experiences with Jesus. He certainly remembered those, and they were important to him. What Paul meant was he didn't revel in his past experiences. I know Christians that spend a lot of time remembering and talking about all that they've experienced and accomplished in their Christian life. And generally, those who are always looking back at their accomplishments are the same people who are not likely to be moving forward. They're not likely to be gaining ground or conquering new territory for the cause of Christ. No, they're, they're quick to tell you about how great they used to be, but rarely discuss their current plans for the kingdom of God and how they might be involved. So to avoid Christian complacency, we need to also keep an eye on the goal. What were the four things so far? He says here in uh, Philippians 3, if you want to avoid Christian complacency, acknowledge your need. Secondly, focus on the necessary, the one thing. Thirdly, don't dwell on the past. And here, the final thing that Paul says is keep an eye on the goal. Keep an eye on the goal. Paul pressed on to make it his own. He acknowledged he hadn't done so, but he's determined to pursue it with all of his heart. He kept straining forward to attain this intimacy with Jesus. He always kept his eye on that great prize of knowing Christ and sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. When I was 14 years, 14 years old, my family moved to Mud Lake, Idaho for a short time. And while I was there, I, one of my friends that I, that I made uh, wanted me to help him run combines. There was big farms and they had combines and I, I don't know how to run combines. And my friend says, that's easy. Here's how you keep running a straight line. If you, if you look at everything next to you, you're going to be all over the place. Pick out something on the horizon, keep your eye on that thing on the horizon, and drive straight towards that thing on the horizon. And you guess what? You'll drive straight. That's what I found out to be the case. Paul's goal and prize were being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and knowing much of Jesus. That was his goal. That was his prize. And now we come to the final point that I want to make here in this passage this morning. It's seen there in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what's this? It has a reward. Remember what it is? It's the same as this. It's that pursuit of intimacy with Jesus so that we'll become like Jesus and bring him glory. It has a reward. If you pursue Jesus with all your heart, if you, if you do everything you can to be like him, there is a reward for you, Christian, there. And what's Paul call it? He calls it the prize, the goal. The prize is intimacy with the God of the universe. Listen to that prize, intimacy with God. The goal, becoming like him. The prize, that's the prize and the goal coming together in Christ's presence in glory. 
That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you hear what this and it is all about this morning? It is about you getting more and more intimate with Jesus so that you'll become more and more like him and bring more and more glory to him. Friends, we have a wonderful Christian life. We have a a great goal, a great prize to pursue. We have a Savior who walks along with us. We have fellow Christians to encourage us along the way. What a great thing that God has prepared for us. Let me pray and ask God to do this for us here at Sun Valley. Father, we do come into your presence now acknowledging freely our need, acknowledging that we have not arrived, but also asking that you would strengthen us so that we might pursue you with all of our heart, that we might make this the one thing in our lives like Paul did, that we would not be distracted by all the other potential distractions that life throws at us, but that we, like Paul, would make this our one pursuit, that we'd forget all these other things that would distract us and that we'd pursue Jesus, that, that we would look to Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to make this possible. We thank you that you sent your Son to draw us to yourself, to, to begin our walk with you. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has been left with us to make the rest of these things happen. Father, use your word here, Holy Spirit, apply these truths to our hearts, help us to be those kind of people like Paul, who admit our need and pursue Christ with all of our heart. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.